0: Welcome to In Focus, a discussion of current issues affecting our economy, featuring a review of the latest research and analysis from the Washington Research Council. My name is Lou Moore. I'm the president of the Washington Research Council, and with me today is Chris Schobloom, who is the Vice President for Research at the Council, as well as Emily Makings, who is our senior research analyst. Chris, what's going on in the economic news of the last week?
1: Well, I think the the two biggest pieces of news last week um, were primarily national. Um, The first was the release of our first estimate of gross domestic product growth uh, for the fourth quarter of uh, 2014. Uh, That number came in at 2.6%. Um, less than we'd seen in the second and third quarters where the numbers were 4.6 and 5% um, uh, respectively. However, uh, those two numbers were boosted for catch up from the, the kind of dismal first quarter we had where the, the rate was actually a, annualized rate was actually a minus 2.1%. Uh, that was, if you don't recall, was, was caused by the severe weather that we had on the east Coast and, uh, and the upper Midwest last winter. Um, all in all, for the year, uh, fourth quarter, over fourth quarter, um, growth w- came in at 2.5%. Um, not the kind of growth that we'd seen in the, in the 60s, or the, even the, the best years in the 70s. Um, but uh, our, our labor force is growing less rapidly now, demographic factors, and, and kind of the what we expect as a normal good growth uh, growth rate is is a bit lower than we've seen historically. So it was a solid number, um, uh, not mm-hmm. something to you know kind of break out multiple bottles of champagne over. But otherwise, doesn't it's sound good like one. it. No, it's not. But given where we're going, it's fine. It's fine. Uh, the other numbers um, that came out um, on the national level was the unemployment insurance claims, um, and and the this is. Bruce Weekly, uh, and for the most um, recent weekly number for the nation as a whole, showed uh, 265,000 claims, which is the lowest number we'd seen since uh, April of 2000. So it's a very good number. Um, uh, On the state level, um, the the, the, um, uh, claims for the most recent week were 7,500. Uh, looking at the four-week average there for the state, um, um, which is, given the noisiness of states, uh, is particularly important. It's 9,358, um, which is 1,400 or so below where it had been the previous year. And and initial claims uh, in Washington are running uh, at... Levels not seen since uh, well before the Great Recession. So that's a that's a positive number for the state also
0: Sure, well no well, one uh comes to downtown Seattle Here is an example, we see right out this window several of these big cranes. Now it's an anecdotal economic measure, but there's, I've heard, 25 of them up in Seattle, so somebody's yeah. doing something. There's some kind of economic activity going on here. Yeah, I and mean,
1: unfortunately, the bulk of that activity for the state as a whole is located within sight of the top of the building we're sitting in. So, mm-hmm. uh, so that's sometimes a problem, isn't it is a problem. When you're sitting here in Seattle, you get a little bit of a Uh, overly optimistic picture of where things are for the state.
0: Understood. Well, speaking about areas outside of uh, the Seattle metropolitan region, Emily, you uh, blogged on agricultural production in Washington. What's going on there?
2: Nice segue. (laughs) Uh, The U.S. US Department of Agriculture released statistics uh, last week on the value of production in Washington. And we have reached $10.2 billion in 2013, which is a new record high. The value of ag production in Washington in 2012 was $9.97 billion. Um, No surprise, uh, apples are still the the number one crop in Washington. And milk and wheat switched places. So now in 2013, milk was the second highest valued uh, commodity in Washington, and wheat was third. Um, Some other interesting points from the USDA's press release are that um, that Washington has the uh, produces the most apples in the the nation, but we are also number one in a number of other products like hops, spearmint oil, uh, wrinkled seed peas, peppermint oil, sweet cherries, pears, um, raspberries, other items like that. So it's a a very important part of our economy.
0: What was that that was wrinkled there, which commodity?
2: Wrinkled seed peas. We're number one in the nation.
0: I'll be darned. That I did not know. Uh, Well, it sounds like the beer producers in their war against the wine producers are are making some gains with hops, uh, (laughs) making that upward uh, upward. Yep, hops jumped
2: quite a bit from 14th to 10th in terms of Washington production.
0: Yeah, you you noted a 40% increase in value, Mm -hmm. so, okay. Very well. Well, uh, I blogged last week on uh, an item of great interest to me and one that uh, the council is going to look at frequently in the future, which is uh, government reform, ideas to improve the delivery of services. We're in an economic climate now where uh, it's always going to be appropriate to look for waste, fraud, and abuse in government, uh, but... uh, there's, there's only so much of that it seems like we can get at. So we need to find other ways to make government more effective and less expensive. And that leads me to the lean performance uh, management initiative of uh, Governor Inslee's. Actually, it was started by Christine Gregoire, but uh, Governor Inslee has taken that up to another level. He's got a number of uh, corporate entities that are participating with him, providing uh, pro bono training in uh, lean management, which is something that was developed at MIT looking at uh, Toyota's uh, production management that they had developed earlier in Japan. So anyway, I found it interesting that uh, 22,000 of our state employees have gone through this training and 9,000 managers. And I, as I noted in my blog, I believe over time, uh, this could, uh, could be part of a cultural change uh, with the state government. And, and lead to some significant uh, institutional changes at some point as well. Uh, currently, we're just looking at some modest savings. And, and more important than that in this initiative at this point is the fact that they're avoiding costs. Uh, they've saved, uh, they saved $6 million in the report year here and $27 million, uh, in costs avoided. And, and one of the things that's, uh, that they've decided to do as an incentive to these agencies is they allow them to repurpose or reprogram these funds. So they, the, money's not taken, the money that is saved by, say, DSHS, uh, they can use for other things within that agency. It's not taken away from them. So anyway, I found that to be a pretty interesting a little initiative that's going on in the state, kind of under the radar. All right. We've got uh, a sustainability report from the, for the city of Seattle. Is Seattle sustainable? Chris, tell us.
1: Well, um, it remains to be seen. Uh, the, you were talking about how looking out the window here at all of the cranes and activity that was going on. And, and uh, I, um, uh, this weekend, started to look at a, um, uh, a report that had been prepared by Peter Steinbrook, a former city councilman in the city of Seattle, um, for the the city city's government, um, looking at um, performance of the city in the 20 years since it um, it adapted its uh, last plan. Steinberg effort is called the Seattle Sustainable Neighborhoods Assessment Project. Um, there's an awful lot of interesting data in here, and I've ba- barely touched it. I'm looking forward to digging into it more deeply later. But, but a couple of things that just jumped out to me um, are related to the basic economy of Seattle. Um, the the uh, 1994 plan set out goals for housing growth in the city and also job growth. Um, the 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 plans uh, housing growth grow, uh, goals uh, called for 60 uh, 50 to 60 thousand new housing units to be added over 20 years, uh, and and they came in right on target just about 60 thousand housing units added in there. Um, that was the good news. the the bad the, the bad news perhaps bad news maybe maybe not depending on where you sit uh, is that they missed their job growth goals. Uh, uh, dramatically missed them. Uh, The plan laid out goals of uh, the city adding uh, somewhere between 131,000 and uh, 146,000 jobs um, over the period. And the most recent numbers available show that the city added only 57,000 jobs. Um, So they're falling far beyond that. Uh, You can look at those numbers in terms of a Uh, A ratio calculated called the the jobs-housing ratio. Um, Currently, the city's goal is to attain a jobs-housing ratio of 1.8 by 2035. In uh, 1994, the ratio was 1.71. Between then and now, the ratio has fallen, actually, to 1.56. So, uh, we're adding more houses. In fact, over the period, we added more housing units and we added jobs. And this is counter to what uh, the planners had expected and wanted to happen. Uh, It calls in question whether the the planners' goals were actually realistic. Um, What we're seeing, uh, uh, economists I respect a lot, and I've actually written on. as a, man, a fellow named Ed Glazer, who's at Harvard, and he stresses the changing role of cities. That successful cities now are seen are, are successful because they're good places to live, uh, not necessarily because they're good places to work. Um, you see around here the suburbanization of jobs, but the the flooding of people back into the city to, because they want to live here and then they want to want to work out, uh, even though they work on the east side, say. Um, and, and I think that, that reflects a kind of an ongoing um, 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 change in the role of cities and, and I think the, the job um, uh, growth projections they're working on are probably just too aggressive. They've got to realize that this is a place where people are going to are going to move to live and it may be that what we've done over the last 20 years is about right. We add just about as many jobs as we add as places to live.
0: I have a question about that. When you're projecting job growth over 20 years, aren't there? I mean, they, they can't foresee significant downturns like we had in 2008. The, that's right. 2008. These are
1: long-term projections, and the, and the business cycle going up and down is going to mean that in, in short runs you, are, you you can't expect to hit the goals. Uh, but but what's, fr- what's interesting is that they did hit the housing goal. That and, is. you know, this, this, this last recession in particular hit, hit housing very hard. So even even with that kind of terrible headwind, uh, they made that. Mm -hmm. So you know it may be that the that in a normal economy um, they would have done somewhat better on jobs, but but given the margin by which they missed, um, I think there's just something unrealistic about these goals, and it's not uh, and things that I don't think policy can turn around.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, well be interested in finding out a little bit more about. Seattle's sustainability in the future. Emily, you uh, were the lead staffer on a a policy brief concerning higher education where there was a considerable focus on the funding of higher education, and you blogged recently about one element uh, of that, which is the uh, GET program. Do you want to talk about that a little bit?
2: Sure. The GET program is the Guaranteed Education Tuition Program in Washington State. It's a 529 plan, which means that um, under, which is what they're called under the federal tax code. So they are, when you contribute money to your fund, they, earnings are um, not taxed when they're withdrawn if they're used for educational purposes. It's kind of like a Roth IRA in that sense. Um, The Washington's Get Program is one of these 529 plans and um, many states have these, they're very, they're pretty common. Washington's is a little different because it's a prepaid tuition plan, not just a savings plan. So you're effectively, you're buying units of tuition that will be used at a later date, but there, there will always be the same number of units essentially. Um, this has been in the news a lot recently because President Obama proposed to tax distributions or the earnings from these accounts as part of his State of the Union proposals in order to pay for a free community college for um, essentially everyone. And it has since blown up. He's decided to drop the proposal, but it really kind of illustrates the problems that these types of programs can have. I mean, GET went through a really hard time a couple of years ago. It was underfunded, and legislators were talking about um, doing away with the program entirely, one of the benefits of GET as a savings vehicle is its tax advantage status. And so when you have a president talking about taking away that those advantages, you have to wonder about the continued sustainability of the program. And uh, Betty Lochner, who's the head of um, GET in the state, had mentioned in an article, which I um, linked to in the blog post, that one of the um, Factors that are involved in GET solvency is the ability to continue to GET on, ongoing enrollments. So this had this um, stood at the federal level, that, that could have been a problem for the state. And I got some data from GET that showed that enrollments and contributions are well down from their 2010 peaks. Um, so it could have been a big problem. Interesting news story from the um, last couple of weeks, I thought.
0: Sure. So uh, what kind of an impact does this program have on, on students uh, affording to go to college in Washington State? I mean, are, are there a lot of students in this program?
2: There are, I mean, thousands of enrollments that have happened, but they're all in, this is since inception. It, it was started in 98. So mm-hmm. since then, a lot of the people have been out of college by now. And it's been great for a number of families, especially early, if they invested early on because they, um, it did very well. And you're you're betting that tuition is going to go up, essentially. So if as tuition kept rising, if you you lock in the tuition rate when you're buying it, so those students did it. You know they came out way ahead. Um, It's unclear whether students who are or parents who are buying the the get buying into the program now if they'll do as well. Hard to say
1: we bought uh, my wife and I bought some units uh, in the name of our our niece and we did very well on it.
2: Yeah. That. But how long goes that? 2006-2007. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Did much better than we over that period than we would have done if we had invested the funds in the stock market. Mm-hmm.
0: So, so was the downturn uh, when the, when uh, a lot of these funds, I imagine, went south to a yeah. degree people yeah. just pulled out of the program, they have not come back in?
2: Uh, I don't know if they pulled out, but the returns just weren't good. And then with tuition increasing, mm-hmm. that also hurt it. Sure. Um, it's been helped. The tuition freeze from the last biennium really helped get their solvency back. So...
0: So just briefly, Emily, and we're going to uh, talk ongoing here a little bit, I think, each week for a while about higher ed, which is a very important issue in this state, particularly in the light of the large expenditures that the governor is, uh, is choosing to make and has to make on K-12 through with these court decisions. Um, so the, the uh, tuition was frozen. Ex- explain that situation a little bit, the background of that and where we are right now.
2: One of the, I guess, philosophical questions with tuition um, in higher ed is whether tuition will be set by the legislature or by the institutions themselves. And kind of historically, the tuition was set by the legislature rather than the institutions. Um, But in 2011, the legislature decided to give public four-year institutions full tuition-setting authority through the 2017-19 biennium. That meant that institutions were allowed to set their tuition, but if they set it um, set tuition higher than the levels that were assumed in the budget by the le- legislature, they had to provide more funds for um, grants for low-income students. So, tuition-setting authority is when institutions have it. It's it can be good because it's more of a market-based option and. Institutions, institutions can um, set their tuition in a, in a way that meets their needs and their students' needs perhaps better than the legislature can. Um, but that's a that's
0: but. But, a at, but at the same time, if it's market-based, uh, it can be bad for parents and bad politically yes. if they have a 49% uh, tuition yes. increase. Yeah, it's, yeah, a,
2: so. it's a balance.
0: Yeah, yes, indeed. So at this point by freezing the tuition the legislature in effect took control of the of right. tuition again right. and so and so where where do we sit right now with that
2: so the well they froze it for the 2013-15 biennium the governor has also proposed continuing the freeze for the next biennium and um, the legislature is under current law is has um, if not allowing the institutions to use their tuition setting authority through the 2014-15 school year, and then it will revert back to the institutions unless something changes.
0: Okay, well, we'll uh, stand by to see what the legislature does, if anything, this year about uh, tuition. Uh, Thank you very much, Emily Making, Senior Research Analyst, and Chris Showbloom, Vice President for Research at the Washington Research Council. My name is Lou Moore. In Focus is a production of the Washington Research Council dedicated to providing timely credible research and policy analysis supporting economic vitality and private sector job creation your tax deductible investment allows our work to continue for more information go to researchcouncil.org